And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As Democrats consider their future, a host of names have emerged as potential candidates for president in 2020. One of those is that of Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, who is the senator from New York. Um, She has not added her name to that list. In fact, said that she is not on it. Uh, But she is a player in the United States Senate on a variety of issues, uh, from family leave to sexual assault in the military uh, to the opioid epidemic. She came to the University of Chicago Institute of Politics uh, to address a group of students. And then we sat down to talk about her life, her career, and the cloud that hangs over Washington today. Kirsten Gillibrand, so good to see you. Uh, we, we just came from um, uh, a session with students at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics. And you, you noted that you said when you were seven years old that you wanted to be a senator, uh, which seems a little crazy. I mean, I have my own crazy stories like that, uh, but not that crazy because there was politics in your family. Right. So I'm sure when I was seven years old, I was thinking of a state senator because there were certain state senators whose names I knew at the time. But I did have this amazing role model in my grandmother who was a larger-than-life person. She just was full of life. Her name was? Polly Noonan. Polly Noonan. I'm guessing Irish. Yes, Irish background. (laughs) Yep. And she – and but also French-Canadian. Her Uh her mother's uh, maiden name was Jagir. And they came from trappers in Canada. And uh, a lot of folks in one of the French Canadian trappers married a um, a Canadian Indian woman. And so our we have all sorts of heritage in my family. Uh But my grandmother, for whatever reason, loved politics. She um, grew up in the south end of Albany, very poor part of Albany, very very working class, never went to college. And as a secretary, so for the time she was 18, she worked in the state legislature. And so she was in this old Albany place. And New York was such yeah. an interesting place for politics. I yeah. mean, Roosevelt and Al Smith and, and, and Dewey and mm-hmm. Herbert Lehman and all these great giants. Yes. And, Averill Harriman. And upstate New York uh, in the 1800s was really the center of the world is because you have to remember early 1900s, they had the Erie Canal to bring goods to the West. And so it was this place of a lot of political leverage. And so my grandmother grew up in the early 1900s. Um, uh, I think she was born in like 1918, maybe. And uh, when she was a young girl, she started working as a, as a secretary. And uh, of course, then all the legislators were men and the sports staff were female. And I don't know how she got this idea, but she realized that if she asked other women to participate in politics, they could amplify their voices meaningfully. And they did that and formed a club. And over 50 years, these women actually became powerful. And you couldn't get elected in Albany without the blessing of my grandmother and her lady friends. And Albany had, you know, uh, we pride ourselves in Chicago, for better Mm -hmm. or worse, for having been the home of one of the last of the great big city machines. But Mm -hmm. Albany had this incredible Corning machine that he was mayor for what? Erasmus Corning. Erastus, 40 years. Long time. 
long, long time. Yeah. And so... So my, she must have known him, huh? Yeah, she worked for him. So the first person, I don't know if she was assigned to him or when he was a state senator, she worked for him. And ultimately he uh, fought in the war and then he um, came back and eventually ran for mayor. And uh, her job during all that time was just as a secretary in the state legislature, but she was in charge of the women's secretarial pool. And so when a new state senator got elected, they'd be assigned someone, and my grandmother would find the right woman to assign. And based on family lore, you'd find the right woman for whatever the state senator was lacking in. So if he was awkward, you'd find somebody good with social norms. If he was a terrible writer, you'd find a great writer. If he was really dumb, you'd find someone smart. And so that's the kind of thing she did. If he was unethical, you'd find someone honest. Honest. Yeah. So you just find the right fit. And that was what she did. And as a consequence, she just worked on campaigns every fall. And I just remember my most vivid memory is going into a campaign headquarters on a hot August day and seeing these women stuff envelopes. And I just remember they were all wearing sleeveless dresses like the one I'm wearing right now, cotton dresses, and they were stuffing envelopes. And I'm watching their arms jiggle just like mine just did. (laughs) And I was thinking... I just want to be just like them um, because these women seemed so amazing. They were just self-actualized. They knew what they wanted. They were fighting for something they thought was important. And so I just breathed in this this feeling that politics and public service was important. And, and did you did you talk with your grandmother about it? Did she did you ever ask her why she was I so run excited or why'd she about care? it? Well, no, I didn't have enough um, wherewithal or uh, I don't know reflectiveness to say, why do you care about this stuff? But I learned from her that it was an extension of her values. And I learned that because she only did a few things outside of her work life. And one was politics, just helping candidates, you know, doing all the things you need to get someone elected, mostly grassroots work. But she also did a lot of charity work for the church. And so these were the extensions of her. And she would help, um, drug addicted youth she'd help anything that this uh, one pastor at, at her church asked her to do whatever he asked she'd do and so she just felt like the way she could help her community was through service and service and public ways. life yeah um the that that whole character of local government is so interesting because you know, not that you guys aren't doing dealing with extraordinarily important things that touch people's lives in Washington, but when you're involved in grassroots politics on a local level, you're really doing problem solving at the most elemental level. People come to you with all kinds of problems that touch on their lives in a really personal way, and then you use... The, solve the, the problem. Yes, and, and use your relationships to help do that. That's sort of what these local political organizations were based on back then. You're totally right. And the way it was described to me when I was much younger is she knew which family the dad needed a job. She knew uh, which family needed a Thanksgiving turkey. She knew which kid needed new shoes. Like It was almost like an extension of social services. And yeah. that's what the party did, and, and that's why you had – ward leaders and you had people to know each block and all the voters on that block but you knew them as families and what their needs were so it's different era very different times but and when you knocked on that door and said and now we need you Mm -hmm. people responded on that Mm -hmm. basis nancy pelosi was here some time ago and and of course she's the daughter of a mayor and a sister of a mayor of baltimore and i Mm -hmm. said well what'd you learn from your father she said i learned how to count (laughs) <laughs> she said, we always knew where our votes were, and we knew that 
uh, okay wasn't a yes, and you know things that obviously still benefit her uh, today. You were among her flock uh, when you were in the House of Representatives, so she's she's she obviously picked up some skills uh, back then. But you didn't um, you didn't go directly into. You didn't. You were on that path. No, no. I was, as I said to some of the students, uh, a lot of times young women are our own worst enemies because we're the, we're our worst doubters. And so I didn't really admit I wanted to be a public servant and in elective office again for about thirty years since the time I was a young girl. And so it, um, I became a lawyer. My mom's a lawyer. I loved the way she could navigate the law. Uh, she was one of the few moms amongst my girlfriends that worked outside the home. And she was a role model for us. And I think we all admired her self-confidence and her ability to navigate tough legal issues. And she did a lot of family law, helping someone buy their first home or um, adopt a child. And so I wanted to have those advocacy skills too. So I went to law school. Let let me just stop you for a second because I I let something go that I shouldn't let go, uh, which is you talked about your grandmother's faith and how important that was mm-hmm. to her. That's important to you as well. That yeah. you've spoken about that and even today you you are involved in the congressional uh uh is it not the prayer, prayer breakfast, breakfast and the yeah. Bible study. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, so I I I grew up Catholic and um Catholics for me uh I never doubted God. I always believed in God. It was sort of born into me as a young Catholic child. But, you can still say that after 10 years in Washington. Yes, but as an adult, um, I really struggled when I was young and single in New York City. And the way I worked through personal struggles is I started going to a new church, and it was actually a evangelical church, different kind of service, different kind of, of preaching. But I really liked it because it was much more intellectualized. It was, here's a passage from the Bible. This is what it means. This is how it applies in your life. And that really resonated with me. So I started doing a Bible study. I did it for seven, six years in the city. I started teaching a Bible study for 10-year-olds. That was mm. really fun. Um, and I, I did volunteer work on weekends. I, I actually volunteered for a couple of charities, raised money for uh, the Little Sisters Project, which was helping women who are inca- incarcerated reintegrate into society. I did a mission trip to Mexico City. I did all sorts of interesting things when I was young and single. And uh, over the last few years in the Senate, um, I, I never really got back into that once I got married and started having kids. Um, church was more something I was trying to inculcate in my kids. I'd you know, help them get their first communion, that kind of stuff, but didn't really make it part of my daily life until about three years ago. And I got invited to go to the prayer breakfast. And when you get invited, you're supposed to tell other senators um, what faith means in your life and and why is your faith important to you. And so I told my personal story, and and I realized that uh, this prayer breakfast actually didn't really start till 8.30. It says 8 o'clock on the schedule, but it doesn't start till 8.30. And I could go at 8.30. I couldn't go at 8 because I bring my kids to school. So I didn't think it was something I could do because of my responsibilities as a mom. And so once I realized I'd go at 8.30, I was like, oh, I can go every week. And so I started going every week. And since I've been going, I've started taking Bible study as well and really enjoying my colleagues on this level. And it's- Yeah, I wanted to add, this is what I wanted to ask yeah. you about. There's so much... Uh- partisanship in Washington, and there's so much rancor in Washington today, and in our politics generally. Do you find, through your involvement in this uh, Bible study, that you are 
that you're relating to your colleagues in a in a in a different way? And does it translate into your work as a senator? Can, do you find yourself working more effectively with them because you have this thing in common? Yes, and it's a really great thing you can do that helps you reach across the aisle and not only understand the person as a legislature as a legislator, but actually as an individual. And so, as a consequence, I've done a lot of good bipartisan work with some of the men I've met, um, some of the senators that I've met through Bible study, which is exciting um, because you find some additional common ground and you build a relationship of trust that's based on your personal relationship, not just you're a D and you're an R and you disagree on basic things. And as you know, um, I really see our job to really help people. And that's really informed by my faith. Um, There's a there's a passage in the Bible called the parable of the talents and um, uh, a master gives his servants um, some pieces of money. They're called talents, each piece. And so he gave, gives a couple servants um, some pieces and he says, I'm going to go away and, and I want you to um, invest this money and I'll come back. And so one servant invests the money and doubles it. And he's like, great servant. I'm so proud of you. I'm so grateful to you. You've, you've made me proud. And the second one also increases the money, not as much, but the third one buries the money and just says, well, I was afraid if I lost the money, you'd be angry. So here it's back. And the master was really angry at the servant because he wasted his talents. And the way I read that parable is God gives you a lot of things. He gives you a lot of gifts, a lot of opportunities. He gives you intelligence. He gives you, to me, he you know gave me a wonderful family. He gave me lots of opportunities. And I really believe if you're not using those talents to help people and make a difference in their lives and do good things, that you're not doing what you were put on this planet to do. And so that has really informed me. And that's fundamentally what gave me the courage to run in the first place. Well, talk about just the interim. You went to law school and then you practiced law. What kind of law did you practice? I was at um, a big uh, white shoe firm in New York City, Davis Polk. I was there for about eight years. And I left to go work for Andrew Cuomo at HUD which was a big, big step for me um, and part of this process of getting involved in politics and getting interested in politics. Did you find that your work at the law firm, I mean, given what you just said about values, yeah. did you feel unfulfilled doing that work? Yes, I did. I felt very unfulfilled and I felt like I wasn't making a difference and I wasn't helping people and I could help these big companies save money, but I couldn't change the world or do good things. And so no matter how much pro bono work I did on the side, I was starving for something meaningful in my life, absolutely starving. And so I tried really hard to find a way into public service as a young lawyer, and I kept failing. The first thing I tried to do was become a prosecutor. I wanted to go work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, so I tried the Southern District and the Eastern District. I didn't get hired by either one. And then I said, well, let's go the charitable route. So I applied to the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Corporation, the Rockefeller Foundation. I didn't even get a response letter. And then I thought... Um, I think you would today, by the and, way. And this is... Decided to go that I maybe, route. Maybe, yeah, I might... Um, and and then Hillary decided to run for Senate. And I was like, oh, this is my big chance. I'm going to get a job on her campaign. I'm going to work full time for her. But I had no relevant experience. And so I didn't get that job. And so I had just started getting involved in democratic politics at the time. And I went to one of our women's leadership forum events. And the speaker was Andrew Cuomo. And he gave this long speech about public service and why it was important and why being a Democrat mattered. So I kind of went up to him after it said, well, I would love to do public service, but I think it's an insider's game, and I don't know how to get from A to B. And Andrew, being the provocative man that he is, said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a seventh-year associate at Davis Polk. And he said, will you move to Washington? And I said, of course. Totally lying. I had no interest in ever moving to Washington because I was young and single and living in New York City. So why would I want to move to Washington? 
But he said, okay, then my staff will call you. And so sure enough, they call me the next day. I go down for an interview. The next week, I get a job on the spot to be his special counsel. And I said, well, I'll let you know tomorrow. And so I go home that night and I talk to my then boyfriend, now husband. And Jonathan was just really simple. He's like, all you've ever wanted to do is public service since I met you. You've got to take this job. Screw Davis Polk. They don't need you. Um, And I'll see you on weekends. Just go. And so he makes things easy sometimes for me. And uh, I was just like, you're right. And so I called Davis Polk, said, I love you, but I'm giving you two weeks notice. I'm going to Washington. And so two weeks later. You never had a moment of saying to yourself, why does my boyfriend want to get rid of me like No, this? no. And the good news was he came every weekend and absence made the heart grow fonder. Yes. And we got engaged yeah. six months later. So yeah. it totally worked. Um, <laughs> and so off I moved to Washington. But it was the very end of the Clinton administration. And so uh, I only got seven months there. And I loved it. And so what I learned by doing that is I really wanted to do public service. Service. And so, because I got up from my bed every day early, I went into office, I stayed as late as Andrew stayed. Yeah. Like, I just loved it. I thought, yeah. this is, I'm helping people, I'm making a difference. And so it really fed my soul. And so um, when I came back, I then talked to my then fiance and said, well, honey, you know, how do you feel about public service? And do you think we could raise our kids in upstate New York? And how would you feel about me running for office what, what someday? What does he do? He does venture capital. Mm. So like asking someone who just got their MBA doing venture capital to move to upstate New York from New York City, it was kind of a big question. Yeah. But he loved me anyway, and he said yes. So Yeah, well, he's definitely proven him. Yeah, so we didn't move right away. It took us a few years to buy a home. Um, I changed law firms. I didn't go back to Davis Polk. I, I joined David Boyce's firm because a, lo- a lot of the work he was doing was social Great justice related. Yeah. I thought, oh, I'll get to do the, one of these really cool cases. I, of course, I only did securities work, but didn't matter. This I, was after uh, the Gore Bush. Bush v. Gore. One yeah. of my jobs was to watch every ounce of coverage on Bush v. Gore and, and understand the litigation, understand what was happening when I was at HUD. But Anyway, so we joined Boyce Schiller, but the great thing about Boyce Schiller, besides just amazing partners like David Boyce and um, Jonathan Schiller and Don Flexner, was that um, they had an upstate New York office. And so after a year, I moved to the upstate office, practiced law from Albany, and then eventually ran for Congress. Yeah, you, uh, you, my uh, my old uh, friend Rahm Emanuel was the head of the yes, he Democratic was. Congressional he Campaign Committee. He was amazing. He helped did, so he much. Had, did, he, did you find him or did he find you? Oh, he found me. I, I was begging for his help. So I'm a first-time candidate in a two-to-one Republican district that no one thinks I have any hope of, of being successful except for my mother. And... There was no way Ron was going to invest in my race unless I jumped through at least five hoops. And so the the great thing about that race was he kept putting, you know, conditions on it. If you raise this amount, if you do this, if you get Emily's list, if you do blah, blah. So I had to jump through five hoops, but I jumped through all of them. And so eventually he just had he had to say, okay, okay, we'll support you. And so then I became magically the red to blue candidate, which was really important that time. And Ron was terrific. Because of the resources that would be that, directed. That means that you're at least eligible. To, it doesn't mean you're getting anything. Yeah, it means yeah. you're at least eligible. And so because a two to one Republican district, it's hard to win. That's uh, yeah. But this was the way of election. And on election night, when our race, explain did, what you mean by so that. So this was in 2006. It was the sixth year of George Bush's administration. We were mired in Iraq, and so even places that were two to one Republican, upstate New York, people were uneasy, and they were really looking for oversight and accountability over. George Bush, and they wanted us out of Iraq. And so I ran on getting out of Iraq. I ran on ideas like Medicare for all. Um, I wanted to um, 
have transparency and accountability in government, and that resonated. And so I was able to beat an eight-year incumbent uh, who was well-loved by George Bush. In fact, his nickname was Congressman Kickass because he's the one who shut down the vote count in Bush v. Gore. He was the one who started the Brooks Brothers the riot. Member? John Sweeney. Oh, yes. He started the Brooks Brothers riot. And so I ran against him, and miracles do happen, and I won. Now— one of the issues that you faced uh, when you made the transition to the Senate, and we'll get to that in a second, was that you also took positions that reflected your district on uh, on uh, issues like guns, for example. Right. You had an A rating uh, from the NRA. Tell me what your thinking was uh, in that regard. And philosophically, how do members approach those kinds of issues uh, when there are differences between districts and differences between states and communities on these issues? Well, when I was a House member, I really only looked at the issue through the lens of most of my constituents that saw guns as just a hunting issue. It was very culturally um, something that a lot of folks in that part of the state did. My mom liked to hunt. My brother hunted. You know, there's a lot of hunting going on in upstate New York. But I didn't actually take the time to understand the issue as well as I should have. And so... Well, you lived in New York City, so you knew that guns could be used for other things. And that's why I really feel I should have been a lot smarter and a lot more sensitive. Um, But when I became... Could you have been elected, though, if you had taken a a less of a supportive stance? I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? Um, Depends. I don't know. But what I do know is that... um, when I was appointed to the Senate, uh, I needed to learn a lot more and and actually be able to understand why, you know, my viewpoint really wasn't right. And so I spent some time right away after I was appointed in Brooklyn talking. And we should point out the uh, the uh, you were appointed to replace Hillary Clinton when yeah. she became Secretary of State. Let me uh, just take a short break, and we'll be right back with Kirsten Gillibrand. So we were talking about the transition from House to uh, uh, to Senate and how you think about issues right. as a senator from New York rather than as a member of Congress from your upstate district. Well, I felt I didn't need, I didn't know enough, and I wasn't um, I, I didn't do enough for enough people, and so I started to meet with families who had literally lived through gun violence. And one of the families I met with were the parents of Nyasha Pryor Yard, who was a seventeen year old girl who was shot uh, by a stray bullet in Brooklyn when she was with her friends. And to look those parents in the eye and hear their heartbreaking story, it's it's crippling. And you, there was nothing I wasn't going to do for that mother. There, there was nothing I wasn't going to do to say, I will do everything in my power to make your child's life um, uh, not be in vain and that I will fight to try to end gun violence in this community so it doesn't happen to somebody else. And so that pushed me to learn more about what actually needed to happen. This wasn't an issue just about hunting. In fact, in New York, 90% of the weapons used in crimes come from out of state, and they're trafficked in illegally, sold directly to gang members, no background check, no gun show, literally just sold out of the back of a truck or a back of a car. And so I worked with Commissioner Kelly, and I worked with Moms Against Gun— Police Commissioner New York. The the then police commissioner— um, and Moms Against Gun Violence to come up with legislation that could ha- hopefully help. And so the first bill I wrote on it was an anti-gun trafficking bill to create real penalties for kingpins, We have that for problem here in Illinois. Which is why um, your former senator and I worked on it um, 
Mark Kirk mm-hmm. uh, because he wanted to solve the same problem. So mm-hmm. we did the gun trafficking bill in the last Congress. And when we got to vote on it, we got 58 votes. I mean, we were this close to passing to passing it. Um, even in the divided Congress. And so I'm hoping to get to introduce it again because this will help sa- absolutely save lives. I mean, I- when, you go, when you go home to your home community mm-hmm. uh, in upstate, presumably you get confronted about this. Um, wh- what do you tell your constituents who do have concerns as hunters and who you, well, you have a large NRA membership up there. So this goes back to your other question, you know, <laughs> could you have run on a different platform? And I actually think you could have because people in upstate New York do not want criminals to have weapons. They don't want guns being sold out of the back of the truck directly to gang members. They actually want background checks. They actually want to make sure um, people who are violent in their homes and beat their wives can't go out and buy a gun the next day. They want to make sure terrorists can't have weapons. They want to make sure criminals uh, don't have weapons. They want states to actually do their job and upload this data into databases so background checks work. So I actually think the common sense gun things, gun regulations that I'm for, that I want to pass, um, would be supported by my old congressional district because they don't want gun crime either. They just don't experience it on the same level that somebody living in New York City or Brooklyn or parts of Albany or parts of Buffalo experience. And they may live in, might live in a rural area and hunting's important to them, but having a background check doesn't impede their right at all. Making sure gun trafficking is a federal crime with high penalties doesn't impede their rights at all. And so I believe I could win their support having that exact view today. So I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't work hard enough at the event or I didn't work hard enough at the issue and understand the issue well enough. And so I, I, I mean, I, I needed to learn more and, and, um, empathize Are there other more. issues like that, that, uh, you didn't have, a that, that you had one perspective on as a member of Congress because of the community that you yeah. served and a broader perspective when you were representing an entire state, including yeah. the great metropolitan area there in New York. Immigration. Um, you know, my district was maybe 97% white. Um, some some immigrants, but not a great deal of diversity in the district. And so I hadn't heard enough of the stories of how painful it is to have your family be torn apart because there's ice um, at their door. Like I, I didn't, I hadn't heard those stories or didn't try to, I mean, I didn't do enough. I, I can... The reality is, David, I didn't work hard enough on these issues because it wasn't pressing on my door. And when Mm -hmm. I became a senator, not only was it pressing on my door, but I couldn't be a good senator unless I learned it, understood it, and tried to solve those problems. Because the problems are real. The heartbreak is real. The, the, The terrible policies that break apart families are what President Trump is pursuing today. And I needed to learn that stuff. And if I was ever going to represent the state as a whole, I needed to understand how hateful and hurtful some of these policies actually are. And I did not have a good enough or um, sophisticated enough understanding of those issues before I was nominated. I asked you this uh, when we were with the students a little bit earlier. I want to expand on this a little bit. Um, why did Democrats fail in 2016? Donald Trump was the least popular president ever uh, elected, according to polling. Still not terribly popular today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get into some of the current events. But but it seems like there was a massive failure on the part of the Democratic Party. Uh, I know you're friendly with with Hillary Clinton. I'm friendly with Hillary Clinton, so I, I don't want to personalize it. But as a party... Uh, where did the Democratic Party fail? Um, I think 
I want to answer that in two ways. First, I just want to say I think Hillary did an amazing thing by running for president. And I can tell you she inspired millions of people, millions of women and girls, saw what it was like for a woman to actually aspire to the highest office in this country, to fight as hard as she can on the things she cared about, and to try to make a difference with her life. Like She inspired all of us, and I'm so grateful that she was willing to fight that fight to the very end. Um, Do you think she lost because – did misogyny uh, cause her to lose that election? um, I I am not the Monday morning quarterback to to tell you why they lost. Um, There certainly is gender bias in all things, but we need to be successful despite that. All of us do, any woman who runs. Um, But I think Democrats failed because uh, – and I take as much responsibility as anybody when I go to places that voted for Trump overwhelmingly, which is most of my state, Hillary won my state because she won the cities, but there's 62 counties and probably around 50 of them went red. It's story all over the country. So a lot of my, a lot of my rural, rural areas, areas yeah. a lot, my old district all was red. Um, um, Long, lots of Long Island was red. I think Democrats needed to listen a lot, a lot uh, longer to what constituents were going through. And, David, this wasn't just about a campaign. They felt they'd been left alone and unresponded to and not been heard for a decade. This was since the collapse. This was not a new phenomenon. They voted for President uh, Obama twice and then switched to Trump because they didn't think anybody had their back. So it wasn't really a messaging issue or even a policy issue. It was they didn't feel anybody understood what they were going through, and there was they didn't feel anybody was fighting for them. Yeah. And that's all our responsibility. I'm not sure, by the way, that it was even a decade-long issue. Could have, because could have been 20 I think, years. I think that uh, for 20 or 30 years, yeah. I mean, Bill Clinton ran – uh, in 1992, talking about the forgotten middle class. Yeah. These are not new issues, but they've gotten worse. They've gotten and the crisis and, and exacerbated the crises are them. different. So, so the story I hear all across upstate New York, you've got people constantly being laid off, people in their 50s. If you're 50s and you get laid off, you are screwed. Who is going to hire you? Not only are these people discriminated because of their age, they're discriminated because they have experience, and so they are a higher-cost employee. And you know, we talked about this a little bit about how the economy is not working for workers. Workers aren't being rewarded. We don't have the infrastructure around the economy to reward work, like having a national paid leave plan or a living Which wage as a minimum a wage. Champion. Yeah, these larger structural changes that we are desperate for that we've not delivered on. Those would make their lives better. Having our educational system actually be able to train you for the job that's available, not just laden you with debt. Um, huge problems in our in our ability to to actually use state schools and community colleges to hone skills directly for the job that's available in your community. That when we do that, it works. We did it in upstate New York when Bombardier needed advanced welders. They called upon Adirondack Community College to to actually offer the coursework for the advanced welders they need. And they said, every graduate you give us, we're going to give them this job. It's a 70K a year job. It worked. We need to do more of that. Let me let, let me ask you one, one question about this. Um, and I, I, we didn't have time to get into it earlier when we were talking to the kids. Um, there is a profit motive to business. You know, you represented businesses when you were a lawyer, and, and you've made the point, and you're absolutely right, that many of them are publicly hold, held companies, the larger ones, and they have to respond mm-hmm. to their shareholders. But we live in an age in which technology is churning at an incredibly fast rate, and so many jobs that used to be able to be used to be done by people are now being done by machines. A lot of jobs today uh, that uh, are uh, 
available are running the machines that used to do that are doing the jobs that people used to do. What do we do about that? Well, you're not going to stop automation. You're not going to stop technology. That's going to keep plowing forward. But what you can do is encourage and incentivize entrepreneurialism, innovation, small businesses, startups, and all of that takes money. You need to increase access to capital, whether you're doing it through credit unions or community banks or smaller banks, um, but actually incentivize real lending to get money into these economies. Um, The biggest successes we have throughout upstate New York, which is a tough economy, is when these schools are used as hubs for different industries. So Albany decided to be Albany Nanotech 25 years years ago. And now it's got an AMD chip manufacturing facility that was a joint venture with UAA called UAE called Global Foundries, a $5 billion investment in Saratoga County uh, that now has follow-on semiconductor production in, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And almost every um, computer chip and, and um, high-tech company now has a presence there because there's so much synergy there. So, so what, if anything, should the role of the federal go- government be in all of that? So one fight we had that was just a totally dumb fight was over Exim Bank. And what Exim the does- The Export-Import Bank. Export-Import Bank. What they do is provide different products for companies that need to sell their stuff overseas. So this, <laughs> this one example that was really funny was uh, this company that produced pickles. And for some reason, the Chinese love these pickles. But the Chinese would say, I can buy a thousand cases, but I can only pay you for a hundred because I need to sell the other 900 before I can give you the money. Grandma's pickles couldn't afford to send them a thousand cases without being paid. But Exim Bank could come in and say, no, no, go ahead, sell a thousand cases. We'll insure you for the 900 that you aren't paid for. So we'll give you the money if they don't give you the money. And so that company then can export overseas because this insurance project works. And to fight over stupid stuff like that. Because it's easily portrayed as corporate subsidies. And that's how the opponents did. Yeah, which was opposed by Republicans, which is ridiculous. This was these were products that helped tons of upstate manufacturers. I went and visited them and talk to them. But it all goes to access to to capital, David. And so the more we can uh, make sure small businesses um, can get the money they need to invest, and sometimes it just takes a little bit of innovation. And I'll give you another really awesome example. So another upstate bank called Key Bank, it had a woman CEO, and she realized that uh, a lot of women-owned businesses weren't getting lending. Women start their businesses with seven times less capital than male-owned businesses. So she said, I'm just going to start with $3 billion. I'm going to set aside $3 billion for women-owned businesses. She's already on $5 billion. It's among our fastest-growing portfolio. It's working. She just needed to take that risk, but she had the vision to say, I think there are good ideas in diversity, and I'm going to look for those good ideas. I would be remiss if, if I didn't speak about the sort of environment in Washington uh, today and the stories that are uh, consuming uh, Washington, and I think the country, or at least the news coverage in the country, and that goes to this uh, probe of uh, Russian interference in the election, potential ties between the Trump campaign and the Russians. Um, You, uh, by all accounts, because it was a closed meeting, uh, were pretty outspoken in a meeting with uh, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, at the end of last week. when he came in to brief you on his decision to uh, appoint a special counsel, but also the events leading up to the firing of uh, of Director Comey at the FBI. What did you learn from that uh, meeting? And by all accounts, you were frustrated with mm-hmm. what you didn't learn. Right. 
So I, what I learned was that he knew before he wrote his memo outlining the reasons why he thought Comey should be fired, he knew that the president was going to fire Comey, which is a really significant fact. I was frustrated because he was selective in which facts he'd tell us and which facts he weren't, and they were all related to the same thing. So I was frustrated that he was making the calls about what he wanted to tell us and what he didn't want to tell us based on uh, an assumption that the special counsel, Mueller, might decide to investigate that part as part of his probe into perhaps um, uh, uh, the the Russian investigation. Um, well, let me ask you about that uh, uh he himself, Rosenstein, is now a character in one potential element of yeah. this story because of his role in writing a memo writing that a the memo president, to the president used as his reason initially. Yeah. Would he uh, talk at all about that? No. So that's what I asked him. I said, please clarify, who asked you to write the memo? Because I wanted to know, did the president ask you to write the memo? Did the attorney general who's supposed to be recused ask you to write the memo? I wanted to know who asked him. And he wouldn't answer that question. And he said it could be possibly part of uh, Mueller's probe. And so obviously he's thinking, or he must be thinking, of um, whether there's an obstruction of justice charge and whether these actions could be related to it. Uh, but again, I was just concerned because he was selective. How can you tell us you knew before you write the memo that the president was going to be fired, but not tell us who asked you to write the memo? They're mm -hmm. part of the same fact pattern. So just giving us facts doesn't doesn't impose upon the special counsel, whether or not he's going to investigate, he's going to make his own judgments. If he believes there's obstruction of justice, he may look into those issues. That's his decision. And I believe we should look into obstruction of justice. I think this is serious concerns to be firing a uh, FBI director in the middle of an investigation that that relates to you and your administration is a serious issue. And well, since then, we've also seen the reporting. We, you reporting haven't seen the memos of yeah, Comey. But you, we heard the report of it saying that he was asked to drop the Flynn thing. And uh, do you expect that you'll see those memos eventually, that Congress will see them? Yes, I think we'll see all of it eventually. I just don't know uh, what the timeline will be. I don't know if uh, the special counsel will want to keep those that information or memos um, under his investigation and not publicly available for a certain amount of time. That's what we don't know. But I certainly hope that the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee can complete their investigations. And I also think we need to have a 9-11-style commission. I really believe that this, the separate issue is, did Russia hack our election? Did they penetrate our electoral systems? Did they undermine any of our voting systems and voter registration? What were the la what was lacking in our systems to, to that couldn't have prevented that? And what do we do to prevent it in the future? And, which is exactly what the 9/11 Commission did. They said what happened, and then they said what what did we not have that we needed to have, and what do we need to build in the future to prevent a similar terrorist attack? We need the same analysis. The frustration that you uh, felt in that meeting with Rosenstein raised the question as to whether Congress will be frustrated in its efforts to really flush out. Uh, what happened because some of the key witnesses now right. will be under lock and key yeah. until the special counsel finishes his work. Right. So can we have Comey testify? Who knows? Will the special counsel intervene and say no? Um, I think both the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee were hoping to have uh, – Mr. Comey testify next week, I mean, right away. Uh, so whether that will be in jeopardy, we don't know. A lot of the senators did ask um, the deputy attorney general whether the, he could give us assurances that they would not be impeded. Uh, and he kind of sidestepped that question and said that's really up to the special counsel. 
We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. I don't want to uh, run out the clock here talking about Russia because we could do that Talk for hours, hours. But it is a fast-moving story. And yes. as we sit here, there were two new uh, accounts that uh, surfaced. One was uh, uh, notes from the president's now famous meeting with the Russian diplomats uh, recently in which he said, I just fired the head of the FBI. He was a crazy he was crazy, a real nut job. I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. Uh, how do you react to that? Well, it's absolutely serious and, again, raises the question of obstruction of justice. Uh, but I'm also troubled by those meetings because uh, he conveyed uh, information that was protected um, top secret information that he wasn't supposed to disclose. And that information was given to us by an ally that specifically said, we do not want you to disclose this to the Russians. And so um, that was very troubling as well. What message do you think he was in now? And we don't know. We should, uh, we should, neither of us were there. These are, you know, this is reporting from the New York Times. We haven't seen any of these documents that from which uh, the, mm -hmm. this account is taken. But, uh, as inappropriate as leaking classified information, highly classified information may have been, what's the appropriateness of speaking to these uh, Russian uh, diplomats about Comey in this way? Uh, I think it's outrageous. Um, I don't know whether this will go into an obstruction of justice investigation. It sure reads that way. Um, but that's what our special counsel is going to look at. Uh, and I think he must. I think it's really important that the people of the United States don't have a doubt that our country is bought and paid for and is being undermined um, by a relationship or collusion with Russia. I think this whole meeting was problematic. The fact that our press wasn't allowed, but the Russian press was. The fact that we only got the details of the meeting from the Russians, that their photograph was the photograph we saw of the meeting, not a White House photographer's photograph. Very strange. And worrisome. You, um, I'm sure you were among those who, and correct me if I'm wrong, who were critical of the way Director Comey handled uh, the information about the probe of, of Hillary Clinton and the email, and particularly his late entry into the race, which has become quite controversial that he, he said uh, leaves him feeling slightly nauseous. Um, you, you've heard the president say, well, look, the Democrats were uh, didn't like him and felt he acted improperly and they are, they have no station to, to speak on his behalf now or to say I did the wrong thing in firing them. Uh, what do you, what's your response to that? I think firing someone who's in charge of an investigation into your campaign and people who worked on your campaign for colluding with Russia is really very different. And it looks like obstruction of justice. You can be unhappy with uh, what Director Comey did um, during the election, coming out when he did with that timing, when he didn't need to, um, as something that was a serious problem. But this is on a whole new level that 
I mean, it was shocking. It was so shocking that a president of the United States would first fire their director of the FBI because they're supposed to be they're supposed to have 10 year terms for a reason. So they're outside of politics. So they're not part of who gets elected and who doesn't get elected. Um, it's supposed to be between administrations. Um, so to be fired in the first place is outrageous. And in the second place, to be uh, to have an investigation be ongoing and then to have statements like this, if these statements are true, if these statements are true, that he says, I, felt, I faced great pressure because of Russia, it's hugely problematic. So Well, and that the pressure was relieved by the because firing Because he fired him. And if, and if it's true that he said to Comey, I want you to finish up the Flynn thing, can you get rid of it? I mean, if that memo is real and that's true, these are horrible things. And they all sound like obstruction of justice. So I just think having a special prosecutor is really important for the American people. And I think we do need to get to the bottom of it. No president is above the law. And that's why you need a special prosecutor. Uh, just a couple of last things on this. Uh, additionally, as we sat here, a story surfaced in the Washington Post that said the law enforcement investigation into possible coordination between Russia and the Trump campaign has identified a current White House official as a significant person of interest, showing that the probe is reaching into the highest levels of government. What do you as an elected official do about that? What do you as a United States senator do with information like this? Or do you just allow the special counsel's uh, investigation to work? Is that is that where things are at now? Well, that's why you also have investigations by the Intelligence Committee, by the judiciary. And that is our oversight role. That's why we have these committees, so we can do investigations. Do you have confidence in those committees? Um. I think they play a really important role. Uh, they may take more time. They might take two years to do a review or three years. Um, I think the the most targeted um, streamlined review is by criminal investigators, by the FBI. So, but I think better resourced as better well. resourced full time people who are criminal experts. Like this is what they do. Um, but I think it's it's important to have these congressional oversight committees. They do play a function. They can make recommendations. They can write a report that's available to the American people. A lot of the work that the FBI does will never be made available. And if they don't find an indictment, none of it will be made, made available. So it's a different process. A criminal investigation is really different from a Judiciary Committee or Intelligence Committee investigation where they're going to write a report and produce it to the American people. So it's different functions, different outcomes. Both are very valuable. And that's why I also want to add the 9-11 style commission to do the bigger deep dive of are we vulnerable from a cyber perspective in our elections? And what are the 10 things we need to do to prevent it for 18 and 20? But the congressional leaders, uh, the Congress obviously being in the hands of the Republicans, have resisted uh, a commission. Yes, uh, do you have any reason that, to believe that that's going to change? I think, I mean, I don't know all the details of these investigations because I'm not on those committees, but I do know there are Democrats and Republicans who are working really hard together to do their job and get to the bottom of it. And I believe that there are enough um, strong Republicans that they will insist on continuing these investigations, issuing subpoenas, getting documents and doing their work. Uh, regardless of any pressure from uh, other Republicans or from the White House. I think they'll do their jobs. What are your colleagues? I don't want to bust your uh, prayer breakfast brethren and sistren, uh, if that's a word. But So I'm not suggesting that's where you talk about such things. But what are your Republican colleagues telling you privately about this? I mean, do you sense a, 
a, a high level of concern about this? Yes, everyone's concerned. This is something that's touching all of us because our constituents are concerned. The American people are concerned. People are very worried, and they need to know that no president is above the law, and they need to know that Congress takes that really responsibly and is going to look to the to the very end to get to the bottom of it. They need to know that we're working for them, and I think that's how most people feel. Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, I so appreciate you coming here, coming to the university Uh, talking to these young people and spending time with me and I hope it's the first of, of, of many conversations well thank you for having me it's really fun thank you for listening to The Axe Files part of the CNN Podcast Network for more episodes of The Axe Files visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes Stitcher or your favorite app and for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics visit politics.uchicago.edu Thank you.